New on CuriosityStream, Darwin's theory of evolution, a scientific breakthrough, but 1920s Tennessee wasn't ready for it. It became the Bible versus evolution. Followed a heated trial that changed American education forever on Monkey in the Middle. And it's the country's deadliest highway. There were something like 178 accidents in a 10-year period. Don't miss the most dangerous road in America. Watch now on CuriosityStream. Annual plans are $20, just $1.67 a month. Visit CuriosityStream.com. My twin sister and I were born with two heads and one body. One brain is mine, the other is hers. We're conjoined twins. We were really lucky to have survived being born, not just because we're conjoined, but because we were born a little early. All the doctors were prepared to announce our death, but it never came because we made it through the night perfectly fine. And now we've made it all the way to 15. Sally is the name of my sister. She looks a little different, but that's okay. She looks a little bit like a baby corpse. It's okay, she calls herself that, and she thinks it's funny, because she likes spooky things. Sort of small and frail and shriveled. She's smaller than me because we're parasitic twins, but I'm okay with that. She's really smart, Sally always pays attention, and knows what to say. A lot of people find us strange, and I understand that, but for us it's normal. We can't be separated, and we don't want to be. Usually. Sometimes Sally can be a bit of a pain, but she says that's how all siblings feel about each other. Sally knows a lot of stuff, since she reads a lot and pays attention to everything. I tend to mind my own business, but she's always taking in information. A lot of the time, though, I end up speaking for us, because people find her creepy. It always goes the same. The person doesn't notice her at first, as small as she is, but when I start talking to her, you can see it in their face. The fear, the disgust, the concern. It always makes me angry because she's not any less human. But Sally says it's okay because she's used to it. Then when she tries talking to the person, they just ignore her and look away. Rude. I hate people who will act like that just because they don't like how someone looks. So, sadly, Sally will tell me what she wants me to say, and I'll say it, always making sure to give them my best judging face. I think it works because they always look like they feel bad. My parents don't like Sally either, which is also really mean. They try to interact with her as little as possible, and it's obvious they didn't want her. I think they used to hope, when we were little, that she'd just die. They don't call her their daughter they don't talk to her, and they yell at me for talking to her. Maybe they still want her to die, just from sadness instead. I can tell they feel bad too, though, because when Dad yells at me, he gets really red in the face and storms out when he's finished yelling, which is what he does when he gets sad and doesn't want us to know. Mom will look at me with tears in her eyes, and I can see she hates that I don't hate her other daughter. I think they're sad because when I don't talk to her, they can pretend they have a perfect kid. But when I do, it's obvious they couldn't even make a normal kid. So I talk to her a lot. Sally talks a lot too, especially after they yell at me. She talks a lot about abuse, which she likes to read about to understand it, and our parents, better. And how even though we're really lucky to have lived this far, what's the point if we're never happy? I also have depression and anxiety, so it's good to have Sally, 
But sometimes I don't know what to do if someone doesn't give me instructions. And Sally always makes sure to give me them when I need it. She also likes to talk about the knives in the kitchen. We cook together a lot and she's fascinated with them because she can't hold them herself. And it's kind of hard to describe how it feels to hold something to someone who's never done it before. Sally really likes the bread knife because it looks funny compared to the other ones. And it makes a nice noise when it cuts into a loaf of bread. And she likes the really big ones for chopping stuff up because it's so shiny and pretty. Lately, we've been hearing our parents talk about putting me in therapy or into a hospital because I won't accept that they want to erase Sally from our lives. As if they can. She's stuck to my body. When we heard them whisper about it one night, I got really scared because it could be hypnosis therapy so I forget about Sally. Or a hospital visit so they can put me under and remove her for good. And if that happens, she'll die. She doesn't have her own organs, besides her own brain. Sally told me not to worry because she always knows what to do, and she promised she wouldn't let them separate us. She really calmed me down when she said that, because I trust Sally a lot. Plus, she came up with a really great plan to make sure we're safe, and we're going to do it tonight. Our parents are going to bed right now, and Sally is resting up so she can make sure to give me the best advice when we sneak out of our room. I decided to write about her while she naps, because she's a really great sister, and I think a lot more people should appreciate her, since she's treated so bad. I'm tired of people acting like she's invisible. I can feel her waking up. I have to put my phone away now to concentrate. I don't want to cut myself on the big shiny knife while I walk to their room. Though every poet considers the heart to be for more than pumping blood, I wonder whether any could hold an organ in such esteem if they lived a day beneath my skin. Is it not said that those who suffer have seen the eye of God? Even I suspect this is nothing but a lie. If it were really true, then I should have seen him by now. All fry women are cursed, you see. It is the way of things, as natural as any other law of the universe. My mother had it, my mother's mother had it, and her mother before her. It was this way before, it is now, and it always will be. Just as birds sing and salmon swim, so too are we fries doomed to live beneath this stormy cloud. Our blood is poisoned, rotten to the core, and as long as there is air to breathe, this will be our fate. Call it what you will, a sixth sense, a woman's intuition, or telepathy maybe, but cursed is exactly what it is. My mother calls it the touch, and that is what I call it too. All fry women have the touch, but no two women are ever the same. My Aunt Sarah has the touch. She can see when somebody is about to die. Do you see that man over there? She will say. He won't even make it another day. And sure enough, the man will die. His fate had already been sealed. How do you know when they're about to die? I asked her once. Perhaps it was a rude question. I know it's not the kind of thing I should pry at, but I'm getting older now and trying to make sense of this world. Well, she paused. It's not quite so simple. We're all dying, even you and I. But when somebody's time is up, they stop looking like you and me. 
What do you mean? I pressed her. I see their skin start to rot, she explained. When it's really bad, it'll melt off like butter. Their eyes turn milky gray and their veins bulge deep purple. My cousin Riley has the touch too. Every man she falls in love with dies a horrible death. At first, according to my mother, everybody thought that Riley was special, that she would be the first fry to escape the curse. She never showed any signs of having the touch throughout her childhood, and it was assumed that by the grace of God, misery had passed her over. But we were all mistaken. She brought home a boy from school one day. His name was Alexander. They were just friends at first, and they were only trying to understand the rush of emotions from a cocktail of hormones. There was a little flirting, a little bit of insecurity. It was the budding spring of passion. They would talk in class, and he would make her laugh. He told all kinds of funny jokes. Riley had a crush on him, but what did she know about love? They were just kids after all. To any adult it would have seemed absurd, but I promise you at just 13, love feels as real as anything else in this world. It happened when we were walking home from school, she explained. Alex took my hand and I could feel that warmth and happiness fill every pore in my body. I felt happier than I'd ever felt in my entire life. I knew then that I'd fallen in love with him. And fall in love they did. The boy got run over by a bus the very next day. Of course my mother has the touch too. Sometimes, even during the sunniest of days in the peak of summer, she will stop whatever she is doing and tilt her head to the heavens. With her eyes closed, we all know that she is listening to unheard voices in the wind, and that we should not make a sound. After a few moments without a single cloud in the sky, she will turn around and say, There's a storm coming. Sometimes there really is a storm. A great big thundercloud, dark and ominous, will roll over the treetops and crash the earth with hail and rain and lightning. But sometimes, she means something else. Last winter, for example, I was helping her decorate the family Christmas tree when she seized my hand with a tight squeeze. There's a storm coming, she whispered to me. The next week, my grandfather was diagnosed with stage 4 pancreatic cancer. He didn't even make it to April. I thought he would at least get the chance to see another spring. Sometimes I find myself missing Grandma Anna, even though I never got the chance to know her. I just feel like if she was here, maybe she would be able to help me understand. I have so many questions. Why are we cursed to live with this pain? What could our ancestors have possibly done to deserve such wrath? Are children not free from the sins of their fathers? I have never conjured an evil thought inside of my head, for as long as I have been alive, and yet I must bear this burden, as if these sins were my own. You're named after your grandmother, my mother told me. How's that? I asked. We named you Anne, she said with a twinkle in her eye, after Anna. And with a smile, I see a lot of her in you. That made me feel good. I am Anne after my grandmother. Even though I never met her, I could just feel that she was an amazing woman. What happened? I asked my mother. I could tell that this was an upsetting question, and it made my mom a little choked up. But she set down her coffee and took my hand. Grandma Anna was a wonderful woman, she said. So vivacious and full of light. 
She struggled a bit to find the words, but found them at last. When she walked into a room, you could just feel this warmth radiating from her. Like she was this little ball of sunlight, you couldn't possibly feel sad when she was around. And then, I requested. Mom sighed. Your grandma was full of life, but when she would meet people, she paused. It was like a little piece of her would transfer into them. That was her touch. I ruffled my brow, unsure of what to think. She loved people, my mom continued, but she used her touch a little too often. By the time you were born, there wasn't anything left of her. When I think about her, it gets me thinking about my own touch. If I'm being honest, it makes me scared. What pain lies ahead for me? Will I ever escape this sorrow? Or am I cursed to live a life of misery? I've always been a bit of a sickly kid. It just seems like I'm always battling some kind of disease or pain or illness. I can never seem to get right. I was born with cystic fibrosis, which doesn't help things. Imagine being waterboarded slowly, one day at a time. Every day since you were born. Every breath I take feels like a vice is crushing my chest. And I worry that one of these breaths will be my last. A couple years ago I woke up feeling sick. I'm not just talking about a little bit of food poisoning either. I mean that I was really, genuinely sick. The doctors said that the disease was progressing faster than they thought it would. They weren't even sure if I had a year to live. I've thought about dying every day of my life. It comes with the territory of being born with a terminal illness, but nothing can really compare to that moment right before the end has come. I have no doubt that Aunt Sarah could see the Reaper standing with me that day. Everybody came to pay their goodbyes. While I sat still in my own bed with tubes of every variety, poking in and out of my body like a human pincushion. I was barely conscious with all the drugs in my veins, but I remember the priest with his wrinkly hands standing over me to give me my last rites. And then something changed. My dad walked over to me, and with a tear in his eye, gave me a little hug. I love you, he whispered. And as he squeezed me, I realized then that there are fates worse than death. If I could take back what happened next, I would in a heartbeat. If only. But sadly, that is not the touch that has been given to me. As his body pressed against mine, I felt the life inside of him leave his body, and I absorbed every bit of it like a sponge. The doctors were amazed. They had never seen such a fast recovery before. Was I a medical miracle? They said. Within a day, I was out of my bed and walking around. Within a week, I was already back at school. But my father didn't make it. He was dead, and I am what killed him. I don't even know how I'm supposed to live with myself. But each day, I take one foot and put it in front of the other, whether I like it or not. I take one breath after another and soldier on. It is the fry way. We are cursed to live, but live we must. I asked my mom once why she and my dad never had any other kids. With a sad look on her face, she said, Well, you were supposed to have a brother. Really? You never told me that before, I told her. You were twins, actually. We were going to name him Tyler, she said. What happened? 
I asked. Sometimes I could feel you both tossing around, she said with a hand on her stomach. I even joked that you were hugging each other. Then she cast her eyes downwards with sadness. But the doctors knew that there was something wrong with one of the babies. You were sick, she added, looking at me. I couldn't think of anything to say in return, so I just listened. Your brother, on the other hand, she continued, was healthy as a horse, a perfectly healthy baby boy. I lowered my head, already knowing what happened. But for some reason, you two switched places. Your brother was stillborn, but baby Anne made it. It was a miracle. And so, I realize now that I have killed not one, but two people. Eat it! Charlotte pushed Merlina's face closer to the fly-infested dog turd. Eat it and be grateful. My daddy saw your daddy at the soup kitchen, so you must be hungry. A cacophony of giggles erupted behind Charlotte. A gaggle of pigtailed, ponytailed, and bob-cutted brats from hell. You're hurting me, Marlena cried. Please, just let me go. Strands of her flowing brown hair were beginning to touch the droppings. Enough, Charlotte, I shouted. Leave her alone or I'll tell the teacher. Charlotte turned her head toward me in a slow, calculated manner. Oh, look who it is. Pee-pee boy Carlos, she pointed, her gang bellowing out on cue. Did you run out of pants to pee in yet? That was three years ago. We were in second grade. You want to know what my daddy said about you? She took a step toward me. Blonde pigtails bouncing as she moved. He said your mommy didn't just skip town. He said your daddy killed her. Stop it. That's not true. I took a step backward. He said your daddy got mad because your mommy was sleeping with every man in town. He said that your daddy doesn't even know if you're his kid. Her next step sent me stumbling backwards, tripping over Marlena. My skull smacked against the crap-covered asphalt. The group roared with laughter, joined by a new voice, Marlena's. Ew, Charlotte giggled. I knew you were full of piss. I guess you're full of crap now, too. The crowd went wild. The sudden blare of the school bell caused the herd to break apart and head toward the building, leaving me to tend to my wounds. My ears were still ringing from the knock to my head when I first heard her. Bring her to me. The woman's voice turned my blood into ice. It was a low, guttural whisper, echoing from the tunnel at the far end of the playground, fifty yards away. I pushed myself up and turned toward my collar. She was wiry, so thin that it looked as if a weak gust of wind would snap her in half. Her skin was gray and sagged as if it was about to fall off. With her right hand, she beckoned toward me once more. Her voice sounded like it was emanating from all around me. Bring her to me. I wanted to run away, but my legs betrayed me. My feet were glued to the ground. Tears began to flow down my face, just as she was about to speak again, my bladder released. Carlos! I turned, snapped out of the trance, by my teacher's sharp voice. Recess is over. Get over here now. My goodness, did you wet yourself again? I'm going to have to call your father. The class clapped and laughed from the window as if I'd given them some sort of encore. We can't keep doing this. 
My father kept his eyes on the road as he spoke. Dad, it was an accident. I saw some... I know it was an accident, boy, but you can't keep having them. You'll be starting middle school next year. I know, Dad. I didn't mean to. I saw some... No one ever means to mess their pants. You just need to go to the bathroom more often. Sometimes you have to go, even if it doesn't feel like it. Do you understand? Dad, I'm trying to tell you that I... Understand? Yes, Dad. I understand. It was still early in the afternoon when we got home. My dad had to go back to work, so I was left alone. I took a quick shower, hopped on my bicycle, and rode back toward the tunnel. I wasn't sure who the woman was, but something inside me was burning to go back and see her. I parked my bike on the side of the tunnel opposite the school. It was a large empty field with a few trees. No one was around except for a couple of teenagers throwing water balloons at cars. Hello. I used my hands as a makeshift megaphone from ten yards away. Is anyone there? The dark, skeletal figure began crawling down the tunnel, bouncing side to side. The woman's bony, gray elbows jutted out toward the walls. Her knees were locked straight, forcing her into a misshapen triangle-like figure. She was giggling and humming as she wriggled forward. A sudden wave of chills poured over me, covering my body in goose flesh. I moved backward, away from the tunnel. The woman seemed incensed by this and began moving faster. She started making a noise that sounded like she was rapidly licking and smacking her cracked, rotting lips. I turned to run, but was immediately pushed to the floor. What are you looking for, your mommy? It was one of the teenagers wearing a red shirt. You gotta get out of here. I pushed myself up in desperation. Before you get hurt. Is that a threat, twerp? He shoved me down again, even harder. My sister has a class with this kid. She said he pees his pants all the time. His sidekick snickered at the same time she spoke. Bring them to me. It sounded like she was inhaling as she called. Please, I yelled. Can't you hear her? We have to go. The only thing I hear is a little boy about to pee his pants. I stood up once more and was immediately dropped by a punch to the gut. I laid on the ground, helpless, as Redshirt jumped on my bicycle and rode off. The sidekick launched a water balloon at me before running away, hitting me square in the crotch. When I looked toward the tunnel, the woman was gone. Somewhere in the depths, I heard a faint, gurgling growl. I jumped up and raced toward home. The trip would take even longer without my bike. My dad's car was standing guard in the driveway when I arrived. He pushed the door open before I even reached the steps. Where the hell were you, Carlos? He yelled. You think today was some kind of reward? That you could just run around town doing whatever you want? Dad, I'm sorry. Please, I need to tell you I saw... My God, did you piss your pants again? Twice in one day. Dad, no. Somebody threw a water balloon and I... A water balloon? You thought you had permission to go have a water balloon fight in the middle of a school day? Get to your room. Now. Dad, there was a... Now. I moped to my room and crawled under the blankets. I tossed and turned that night. Every creak of the floorboards and whistle of the wind caused my heart to race. At some point, the sweet release of sleep rescued me. I could hear the other kids whispering and giggling behind my back at school the next day. I flinched every time I rounded a corner. 
Hearing the final bell ring felt like a weight being lifted off my shoulders. I stepped out of school, planning to take a long way home, when Marlena approached me. Hey Carlos, she said. I'm sorry I laughed at you the other day. I was just trying to fit in. She started walking toward the playground. Oh, uh, it's okay, I guess. I began to follow without realizing it. You know, Charlotte's not all that bad when you get to know her. She was just having fun. She started walking quicker. Um, she kind of is. She's been bullying me since the second grade. I matched her pace. Well, either way, she came to an abrupt stop and turned to face me. I wanted to thank you for sticking up for me. She slowly began leaning her face toward mine. My heart started banging in my chest. She inched closer, eyes closed. I gradually leaned back, closed my eyes. Our lips were nearly touching and then... Ew! Charlotte's voice shot through the air like a bullet. I told you he'd come if you told him to. Peepee boy has a crush on you, she laughed. Marlena stepped away, covered her mouth and giggled. I opened my eyes and realized we were mere feet from the tunnel. You really thought she was going to kiss you, didn't you? Charlotte laughed. I found another dog turd. This one is just for you. Marlena and another girl grabbed me by the arms and held me in place as Charlotte moved toward me with a wet mess in her bare hands. Bring them to me. The voice sounded more potent now, more explicit than ever. I didn't hesitate this time. I swung my head to the side and cracked Marlena in the nose, then pushed Charlotte's hand into her face. Ah! she screamed. Get him! I sprinted into the tunnel, the girls chasing not far behind. I was never the fastest runner in the class, not by a long shot, but the tunnel wasn't very long. I pushed myself forward with everything I had, but every one of their strides equaled two of mine. I could feel them gaining on me. My lungs began to burn. I felt one of them graze the back of my shirt. I was almost at the exit. A hand pushed me by the shoulder, sending me crashing into the ground face first. I bundled into the fetal position and covered my face instinctively, bracing myself, and then, nothing. I opened my eyes to see that I was lying in the field, a few feet outside the exit. I stood and faced the tunnel, but it was empty. No Charlotte, no Marlena, not even the grey woman. I was brought in for questioning by the police since I was the last person who saw the girls before they disappeared. I told them that we were playing a game, the girls were hiding, I was seeking. I told them the last place I saw the girls was the tunnel. The department closed the school and scoured the shaft. They found a single set of bones buried inside. My mother's. They still don't have any leads on who killed her or buried her there, but I think I have an idea. The school opened for summer classes today to make up for lost time. When my dad came to pick me up, a low guttural growl poured from the tunnel. Bring him to me.